at uh, uh, Indiana uh, University. And um, then we have Faleh Jabbar, who again is a, both an activist and a scholar who has been involved in uh, Iraqi affairs and in the analysis of Iraqi affairs and politics uh, over uh, many years, and he is the director uh, of the Iraqi Institute, uh, Strategic Institute, is it called, in Beirut at present. So um, we start with uh, Professor Toby Dodge. Right. Well, thank you very much, Sammy, and thanks to Falah and Faisal for taking the time out of what must be very crowded and hectic uh, agendas to come and give their, uh, share their wisdom with all of us. And I think, like any of us, trying to react to a crisis that, although it seems like it's been unfolding for many weeks, if not months, only started on the 10th of July. So I, um, I put together three questions that helped me plough through the wave, the tidal wave of very depressing data that, um, that we've been trying to process and understand since uh, uh, the government lost control of Mosul. Now, um, the first question is, what does this re revolt represent? Now, I'm a, a great uh, fan of the, 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 uh, the sensible end of, of the press, but I think given that events have moved so quickly, the type of reporting that we've been subjected to since, uh, since the 10th of June is about the Islamic State in, in Iraq and Shams, ISIS, Daesh in, in its Arabic acronym, about the speed of these barbarians moving from Mosul down to the gates of Baghdad, the eminent uh, overrunning of Baghdad and all the hell and slaughter that is meant to represent. And this is the first great question and conundrum that I've been wrestling with. The best... Uh, Estimates that I could come up with would be the uh, ISIS's numbers in 2013 were roughly about 3,000. And even the most optimistic or the largest, the biggest numbers would place their fighters at about 8,000 in Iraq at the moment. So if we follow the conventional wisdom of this crisis, 8,000 fighters, irregulars, terrorists if you want, guerrillas depending, overwhelmed a garrison, a heavily defended garrison in Mosul of up to 30,000 troops and then moved with great speed down to overwhelm Baghdad. Now that strikes me at, uh, at first glance, second glance and indeed after many weeks of studying this narrative is completely implausible. So what exactly is going on in the north and the northwest? I think what we have is a much wider revolt. Now, Eamon Tamimi, who's, a, who's a, an, an admirable expert on um, radical Sunni Islamist groups in Iraq, would say, I think, that there were five major armed factions involved. That what we have is a much more widespread rejection of uh, the government control in Iraq that reminds me somewhat of 2004. If you cast your mind back to 2004, which is the date I would, uh, I would start the Iraq Civil War at, you see a great deal of fractured violence across Iraq, across Baghdad and up, and, and with then al-Qaeda in Iraq claiming responsibility for it. Now, in 2004, clearly, there was a much wider set of groups responsible, and again in 2014, I think that's clearly the case. What we have are a myriad of groups exploiting the weakness of the armed forces and moving to try and drive uh, the, 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 the resented uh, forces of Baghdad, the police and the army, out of an area of control they've only tenuously uh, had a grip over. Now, people say, can 
bag, uh, Mosul be retaken? I think the answer, the actual explanation would be Iraq's government, the Iraqi government's control of Mosul has always been since 2003 at best tenuous. And Mosul has become uh, a staging point and a focus of competition between radical Islamist groups, bandits and criminals as well, seeking to raise money from its long-suffering population to fund their, um, their revolt. Now, if we look at stories from places like Mosul itself or Hibib near Bakuba, in Hibib uh, near Bakuba, which is 40 miles from Baghdad, you see eyewitnesses saying that uh, 20 Daesh fighters turned up and their ranks quickly swelled with a much larger group of armed men from the immediate vicinity, which I think indicates that there is much more to this than this narrative of people uh, sweeping, um, uh, of Daesh sweeping down the country. Now, I'm not in any way stressing this as a popular revolt or a populist revolt, and I'm not stressing the unity of the forces arrayed in the north and the northwest. And clearly, you have, if, if Daesh is one of the main forces, then the Naqshbandis are another, the order of the Naqshbandis, and we've already had reports of uh, fighting between these two groups as Daesh demands that other fighting groups offer up their loyalty to their overall project of creating the Islamic State. And again, this is reminiscent of Iraq in 2006 going into 2007, that the austere uh, authoritarian project of radical Islamists clashes with a much more, shall we say, pluralistic understanding of Islam um, across northern Iraq and Anbar especially, where in the end this triggers violent revolts against what was then al-Qaeda in Iraq and a division and fighting amongst these groups for control of the population, but also for the ability to repress and shape the population. So I think what we have is clearly a much wider or, um, uh, revolt uh, in Mosul and coming further down, but also divisions within that. I think the only theme that might unite these different groups and a population that is now under their control is an alienation from Baghdad, which I'll touch on later. The second thing is the second question that I've been wrestling with is why did the army clap so much, clap so quickly in Mosul? In 2012, two, uh, 22.31 billion Iraqi dinars was spent on the Iraqi army, up from 3.6 trillion, uh, up, from, um, up from 3.6 in 2009. The latest figures I would have would indicate that the Iraqi armed forces, both the Ministry of Interior and the Ministry of Defense, employ nearly a million men. That's equivalent to 8% of the, entire, the country's entire workforce and 12% of the total population of adult men. So if we're talking about the disbanding of the army infamously by the United States in 2003, from 2003 to 2014, we've seen the remilitarization of Iraqi society with vast amounts of Iraq's oil-driven uh, gross domestic product being pumped into, uh, into the army. Now, why did that army, or at least 30,000 of it, clap so much? Well, I think we see that the army built by the United States through to 2011 has been politicized and fractured. Now, this is nothing uh, radically uh, odd for Iraq. You see a series of coups unfold through the 1950s and 1960s in Iraq, and then the recurrence of coups drops suddenly away through the 70s and into the 80s as leaders coup as civilian leaders of, of Middle Eastern states coup-proof their armies, break the esprit de corps of their officer corps, break up 
the, the, the central Iraqi, central Middle Eastern armed forces, so they no longer become a threat. Now, that has happened very quickly in Iraq since, I would say, 2007-8, where Nouri al-Maliki, the prime minister of Iraq, feeling a direct threat from this increasingly uh, expanding military created by the United States, did two things. Firstly, he set up in 2007 the office of the Commander-in-Chief and brought that into the office of the Prime Minister. The office of the Commander-in-Chief is obviously run by the Commander-in-Chief, Nouri al-Maliki, but it represents an attempt by the most powerful politician in Iraq to seize the commanding heights of the army and bring them into his own personal control. So the office of the Commander-in-Chief controls appointments to senior generals, controls the structures of the army. And then secondly, Nouri al-Maliki, again, from from February 2007 onwards, set up a series of provincial command centers. So in every area of Iraq, there was instability. The the government set up a command center to centralize in each province the police and the military under one control, unsurprisingly, the control of the office of the commander-in-chief, the prime minister. Now, this has, I think, very effectively coup-proofed the military. I think no one speaks of a coup against civilian power in Iraq today, but it's also, as a consequence of that, deliberately broken the chain of command, removed the chain of command from uh, the, the ordinary rank and file through and up to the Minister of Defence and then with parliamentary oversight over that. So in coup-proofing the military and removing them as a threat to his control, Nouri al-Maliki has also broken their coherence as a fighting force and appointed senior generals because of their loyalty to him, not because of their skill in strategic manoeuvring or indeed their ability to engender loyalty from the rank and file. And if reports are true, the senior generals in control of the Mosul garrison got into civilian clothes and fled to Erbil very quickly, where they were quickly put on a plane back to Baghdad by the Kurdish regional government, who didn't want anything to do with them. But I think that's indicative of a senior command within the armed forces fighting possibly for Nouri al-Maliki, but more probably for their own career advancement. So when push came to shove, they weren't willing to stand with their army and fight against whatever laid siege to Mosul and the garrison. And finally, I think the biggest question, when would we put the date for the start of this revolt? Now, you could put it in the violent suppression of the last protest camp um, in Ramadi in December 2013 into uh, uh, January 2013. And 14. What were these protest camps? Rafi al-Asawi was the most senior Iraqi politician from, uh, left in government, the, Ministry of Fi- the Minister of Finance, left in government after um, Vice President Hashemi was driven from power. In December 2012, his house was raided and his bodyguards were taken into custody. That triggered a series of largely peaceful but very angry protests across the areas of the north, northwest of Iraq that have Sunni majorities. And so Rafi al-Assar is driven, driven from cabinet by March 2013, became a lightning rod, as it were, for a, series, uh, for a section of the population, broadly Sunni, who had voted for Iraq here in the, 19, in the t- uh, 2010 elections, who felt alienated from government, felt that the, the, their investment in the ballot box in 2010 had been uh, repaid by their politicians being driven from the cabinet. But I wouldn't actually put the date for this political crisis with the arrest of Rafael Asawi's bodyguards and the raiding of his house. I would actually put the origins of this crisis in the political system 
set up by the United States after an invasion in 2003. And work done in the Crisis Research Center in this very august institution, London School of Economics, makes the point that you have elite pacts that are set up to bring countries out of conflict. And what they do is identify in a, in a rough and ready consociationalism, similar to Lebanon or, uh, or in, indeed Bosnia, they identify key members, key representatives of different warring factions within society, bring them into government, bring them into the cabinet to tie those sections of society together and give them a commitment to the state. But the Crisis uh, Research Centre at LSE identifies something else, a variant of that, exclusive elite pacts, which do the same thing, but they bring only certain sections of society in and deliberately or otherwise exclude other sections. And I would argue that the, governing, the Iraqi governing council set up by the United States in, we're in, uh, in conjunction with the United Nations set up an exclusive elite pact. And that exclusive elite pact has run through from 2003 onwards through the, 2000 and the two elections in 2005 up to the election in 2010. Why I would argue it was exclusive, firstly, it was set up in terms of ethno-religious identity. And it would, I remember a former, a, then a British ambassador in Iraq very proudly telling me that the Iraqi governing council was the most representative body Iraq had ever had. What did he mean, representative? What he meant was that they'd picked the members of that council because of, the, because of their supposed ability to represent ethno-sectarian bases. So many Kurds, so many Shias, so many Sunnis. And the ludicrousness of this, I would suggest is indicated by the fact that the head of the Iraqi Communist Party was shoehorned into the Shia bloc in the Iraqi Governing Council, which indicates, I suspect, that not only were secular people, people who didn't recognise themselves to have a religious identity excluded from that elite pact, but also the Sunni population of Iraq was shoehorned into being represented then by the Iraq Islamic Party, then by Tawafak, and, and, and kicked out against that, rejected that, and then voted en masse in 2010 for a secular political grouping, Iraqia, which was a great potential threat to this exclusive elite pact and could have resulted in the reworking of how Iraqi politics was shaped, but didn't. So I would argue the three points I've just done to sum up before uh, the chair gets grumpy with me. Firstly, that this revolt is not simply, or even at the moment, primarily the Islamic State in Iraq and Shams, this extremist Islamic group flowing out of Syria and down towards Baghdad. It represents a much more diverse grouping of that. Secondly, the the, the huge garrisoning in in Mosul collapsed because the army had effectively been fractured and politicized to protect Nuri al-Maliki, and that directly hindered their capacity to control the city of Mosul, not that they had a great deal of control over it anyway, and allowed this disparate band to move through Beji, through Tikrit, into Diyala and towards Baghdad. They've now stopped before they got to Samarra. And I think thirdly, the actual roots of this crisis lie in the political system set up after 2003 that deliberately restructured Iraqi politics along sectarian and religious lines and in doing so shrunk 
the re representation of the Sunni population and refused to recognize the secular co coalition Iraq here as a valid player within that. And they were then shoehorned in to the sectarian quota system and then their politicians, primarily Rafael Asari amongst them, were driven from the cabinet as Nouri al-Maliki attempted to neuter the political capacity that they, um, that they delivered in 2010. And I think my final point, as we come up to 15 minutes, is that it's no coincidence, I suspect, that this revolt, or whatever it is, the fall of Mosul, uh, took place in the aftermath of the, the last set of national elections on the 30th of April 2014. Iraqia fractured. That three politicians stepped out of its ruins. I had Alawi still trying to promote a secular vehicle for election, and two other politicians ambiguously running for the votes of the Sunnis. And that then fractured the political representation. So, this revolt, I suspect, incredibly worryingly, is a revolt against the political system, but it's also a damning, a damnation of electoral politics. And that's what leaves me so worried about the future of Iraq and how Iraqi politicians and much more astutely the wider Iraqi population can step back from the brink and put Iraq back together again. Thank you. Thank you very much, uh, Toby. Uh, now we go to Professor Faisal Istrabadi. Well, good evening. It's a pleasure to be with you, uh, even if it's for rather a grim topic. Um, let me be clear about a couple of points. One, um, in the media, at least I can speak to the media mostly in the United States, this is being reported as, an, as this Islamic State in Iraq and the Sham or the Levant. This is being reported as a, as, a, as a revolt by this sort of al-Qaeda successor. And there's no doubt that there's an element of this, as uh, Toby has just said. But I do not believe that had it been only ISIS, uh, that they could, in fact, have taken over city after city so quickly. I mean, Mosul, Iraq, second largest city, population of nearly 2 million, fell in less than half a business day. I do not believe that could have occurred if there were not very many elements involved in this, uh, in this insurgency, whatever you want to call it. Now, that actually is good news, I think, because it means that there are groups who, are, who have made an alliance of convenience with ISIS. Um, groups which have a political agenda that is negotiable, as opposed to ISIS, which, whose, whose agenda is simply non-negotiable. ISIS simply has to be uh, defeated. It's, it's their way uh, or no way, and it really has to be certainly not their way. Um, so if, if, if I'm right about that, and I think most of us have been sort of saying that this is the case, um, this actually presents a moment to recapture uh, what, was, what has been lost in, the political, uh, in, in, in terms of the politics of the country over the last several years. I agree with Toby that uh, the sectarian spoils system that was put into place after the 
American intervention in Iraq, the, the Anglo-American intervention in Iraq, uh, has in fact been a disaster, and it has attempted to pigeonhole us into uh, into a uh, into the sort of spoiled. You know, we used to say we don't want the Lebanonization of Iraq. Now, you know, fairly early on in this unfortunate enterprise, the Lebanese started saying we don't want the Iraqification of Lebanon. So. Uh, in, in the problem for us is that the Iraq, to, to reduce Iraq to its sort of ethno-confessional groups is to miss this, the real story of Iraq. There is particularly in the cities a high degree of intermarriage. Uh, there are many of us, and I am one, who don't identify ourselves by any particular, particular ethnic or confessional grouping. I identify, I'm an Iraqi. I'm not interested in reducing that identity. And in 2003, I believe there were more people like me than there are now, and this is a problem, because 10 years is 10 years. And, and, and how we reverse this process uh, is, is a question I have no particularly good answer for. I think 2010 was indeed an opportunity, um, and it was missed for the reasons that, uh, that, uh, that Toby discussed. Now, there's a problem, by the way, and I always say this. There's a problem with talking about the Shia and the Sunnah of Iraq because there is no Shia position, there is no Sunni position, but we're reduced to using these terms as shorthands. And I will be using those terms because I haven't thought of better terms, um, but they're only shorthands. They're, they're not accurate terms, but... Uh, I can't give a 10-minute explication every time I use a term. So I will use the terms. The history of the Sunnah in Iraq since 2003 is this. They boycotted the elections in 2000, the first set of elections in 2005, which, was for a, which were for a constituent assembly. It was an incredible act on their part because the Shia of Iraq boycotted the elections in 1920, uh, boycotted the political process in 1920 uh, when Great Britain was playing the role of the United States. And by the way, it's incredible. If you read General Maud's first order, it reads exactly like General Sanchez's first order. We, you know, you, the heirs of great civilizations, you've been oppressed. We're here as liberators. We won't stay. I mean, it's almost verbatim. It's incredible. Be that all as it may, um, they boycotted the elections for a constituent assembly. A constitution was written without Sunni participation a deal was made, the exclusive elite pact Toby talked about, between essentially the Shia and the Kurds of Iraq. They learned their lesson, the Sunnah. They participated in the next set of elections under, effectively, to form a government under the permanent constitution, voting largely for their own sectarian candidates. Now, in the first election, we ended up with Jalal Talabani as president, we had a prime minister, a Shia prime minister from the Da'wah party, and essentially the highest ranking Sunni was the Speaker of Parliament. That's the elections the Sunni was boycotted. Next election, 
They participated in. They voted for their sectarian candidates. The president was Jalal Talabani. The prime minister was Nurin Maliki, also from the Dawah Party, the Shi'i Dawah Party. And the Sunnah got the speakership of the House, of the uh, uh, Chamber of Deputies. 2010. They participated in large numbers. They voted for a non-sectarian candidate, a nationalist candidate, Ayad Alawi, the former prime minister who was, became prime minister immediately when Bremer left Iraq, a Shi'i. So the, the Sunnah rejected their own sectarian candidates in favor of a nationalist list headed by a Shi'i. They won more seats than the current prime minister had at the time. What was the result of the election? Jalal Talabani was the president, Nurin Maliki was the prime minister, and the Sunnah got the speakership of the chamber. Now, what would you do? There's a point at which it becomes self-evident that participation in the process is not getting you anywhere. Now you can go home and retire to your farm, as it were, or you can, uh, as it were, rage against the dying of the light. Another event occurred. In 2005, there was a referendum on the permanent constitution. That constitution passed by nearly unanimous margins in the Kurdish and Shi'i parts of the country. It was rejected by large majorities in three of the predominantly Sunni, in the three predominantly Sunni governorates in Iraq. By margins well over 50%, and in two cases by margins over two-thirds. And had the third governorate been also by a margin of two-thirds or more, the referendum would have failed. That constitution called for the federalization of Iraq. The Sunnah rejected it. That's 2005, October of 2005. Fast forward. 2011. Already we've had the 2010 elections now. No change. <coughs> the three Sunni governorates that had rejected the Federalist or Consociationalist Constitution voted to create their own Sunni governorates, their own Sunni regions, under that constitution they had rejected five years earlier. But the prime minister refused to allow referenda to go forward. The, I should I get into the details. The point is the governorate councils voted under the constitution, pursuant to the constitution they had rejected five years earlier. The governorate councils and the three governorates voted by majority to hold referenda on the issue of the creation of Sunni regions, Allah, the KRG, the Kurdistan Regional Government. In other words, they bought into or were willing to abide by the rules of the game set by the Shia and Kurdish parties in the country. They accepted the rules of the game. The prime minister refused to allow the referenda to go forward. And instead, as Toby has pointed out, started locking up uh, their elected leaders. I ask again, what would you do?
I mean, you don't have to be clairvoyant to have realized years ago this was the path we were on. Saying that, where are we now? I think I have five minutes. Is that right? Um, more or less? Yeah, why not? Oh. <laughs> <laughs> I should have asked for more. <laughs> In fact, I believe we are in an existential crisis. To be or not to be. Do we as Iraqis, not only our political elites, and let me say, the political elites of the country have failed their constituents. I, a, a representative of the United Nations told me in 2004, and this man had worked in some of the most hapless countries around the world. He told me, collectively, you have the worst political class I've ever seen. <laughs> Regretfully, events have proven him right. <clears throat> but we, as a polity, as citizens, have to decide, do we want to live together or not? Do we want to live in one country or don't we? And what are the ramifications of answering that question, yes or no? Because if we answer the question, no, in my opinion, we won't break up into three need countries. The, pardon me, the Kurds may be able to maintain a Republic of Kurdistan. But not the Arab parts, I don't believe. I believe that in time, and not a long time, our future will resemble that of Somalia. And is that the future we want for ourselves? And if it isn't, are we willing to broker the compromises necessary with each other that allow us to live in the same country? That's what I think is at stake. Now, the fact of the matter is, in the last two weeks, and one hugely important thing has happened. The Kurdistan regional government has... Um, expanded into all the areas that are constitutionally defined as disputed areas between Baghdad and Erbil, the capital of the Kurdistan region. Well, that includes Kirkuk. Now, what's noticeable is that Turkey hasn't said a word about that. Imagine five years ago. Imagine ten years ago if the Kurds had marched with the Peshmerga, the Kurdish force, into Kirkuk, what the response from Turkey would have been. For that matter, Baghdad hasn't really said much. Which is to say, remember Turkey selling Kurdish oil directly without an agreement from Baghdad. Which is to say, the Kurds actually can opt out of the state very easily. Now, I'm not predicting that their future will be easy because they're a landlocked country and they will be, they will have all their eggs in the Turkish basket and there will still be an Iran on this side of them and if Syria ever gets back together and if the rest of Iraq gets back together, they could be on at least three of the four countries that they border, they could find hostile neighbors. Why am I going to all of this detail? Nonetheless, 
The Turks have made it clear they have no objection to Kurdish independence. Unthinkable 10 years ago. The fact of the matter is that the president of the Kurdish region has thrown a line to Baghdad. That there are circumstances in which, at least with a modified deal, he's willing to remain within some sort of polity that we'll still call Iraq. And the question to me is whether the politicians in Baghdad have the wisdom, if they want to preserve some semblance of the unity of the country and avoid the devastating chaos that will follow if they don't, if they're willing to grab onto that lifeline uh, to try to preserve something of Iraq. It's not an Iraq any of us know. Uh, but it would avoid much shedding of tears given the alternative. Given the history of our political class over the last 10 or 11 years, I'm not buoyed. I'm not optimistic. Given the statements of the Prime Minister of Iraq yesterday evening, failing, in my view, to recognize the gravity of the situation, the fact that the state of Iraq has collapsed north and west of the capital, north and northwest of the capital. The state of Iraq doesn't exist. I'm not optimistic. It's our only chance, in my view, um, and I hope that a uh, benevolent deity causes causes its countenance to shine upon the Iraqi political elites uh, and that they grow into the role very quickly and pull us out of this abyss. Thank you. Okay, thank you, Faisal. Um, now, uh, Dr. Faleh Abdul-Jabbar, it's your turn. Thank you, Sami. <clears throat> I'll talk about the elections and the, uh, the developments, sociological and political, you know, sur surrounding them. We have two different and sundry trajectories, seemingly sundry. One, on the one hand, we have the, the stiffening of ethno and sectarian dividing lines, entrenching communities like the trilogy we know, Kurds, Shias, Sunnis, vis-a-vis -vis each other. At one and the same time, <clears throat> each segment is sustaining or has been sustaining tremendous uh, fragmentation from within. And these, you know, they look like a paradox. The fact is that the first phenomenon, this uh, division into uh, big uh, sectarian or ethnic groups, has to do with mechanisms of nation building. The British created Iraq as a nation state on the basis of Iraqi patriotism, which was a Sunni-Shia understanding, built on a Sunni-Shia understanding, with a sidetrack, some accommodation of the Kurds. It was a shaky thing, but bit by bit, the liberal system, the market economy system, the landlord class, which was inclusive of all segments, you know, <clears throat> uh, lent the system some as a, a relative state of, of stability. The Americans built this new or invented new nation state in Iraq on a Kurdish Shi uh, understanding with 
some accommodation of the Sunnis. And later on, they tried to uh, remedy this. Uh, in fact, after a long period of fighting, uh, by uh, incorporating the Sahwa, among other things, which, which represented a uh, you know, large swath of uh, political and, eco- and social forces in the predominantly Sunni areas. Malikis, at least since 2010, right after the elections, which he hardly won, he got 89 uh, seats, vis-à-vis Yad Alawi, he got 91, and the kingmaker Sadr came to his rescue. At that time, he was terribly weak. He was, the vict- you know, he was uh, battered by the Saulat uh, al-Fursan, the charge of the Knights, the campaign that Maliki unleashed against him, and he was in exile in, uh, <clears throat> in Iran, so he accepted, and uh, uh, Maliki made his day. From that moment on, he unraveled he unraveled what had the remedies uh, invented by General Petraeus and all the previous uh, uh, steps or arrangements to incorporate uh, the ex-Bathist and uh, the disfra- newly disfranchised uh, Sunni areas. Uh, his authoritarian tendencies were clear to everybody to see, and we call him Arrakazigam, meaning that you know, the one who, lo- who loves to fight everybody, if he doesn't fight somebody to fight with, he would fight with himself. So he was antagonizing the Kurds, he was antagonizing uh, uh, the Sunnis. I mean, he unraveled the Iraqia, actually. He uh, uh, kept uh, Iyad Alawi out of any arrangement of power sharing. Then he had uh, uh, Tariq al-Hashimi sentenced to death in absentia, now in exile in Turkey. Then he targeted uh, Isawi, and then he targeted... Uh, some MPs uh, from Iraq, notably the Shia MPs from Iraq. That was the first target, actually. He didn't want that centrist bloc to materialize, creating a Sunni-Shia kind of alliance that is uh, uh, trans-communal. At that time, he was, uh, you know, he felt he was strong. He had uh, this uh, successful military campaign against the militias behind him. He won 50 percent uh, of the vote of the Shia vote uh, in the two, 2009 uh, provincial elections, and actually he was the actual ruler, the Dawa Party, his party, in seven provinces and sharing power in, uh, in other two, all, all nine uh, Shia, predominantly Shia uh, provinces. Now. <laughs> This policy fired back, simply because not only antagon- he was not only antagonizing the Kurds and uh, you know, removing the Sunnis from uh, the echelons of power, but also he uh, split uh, the, um, the Hakim faction. He hijacked uh, uh, the Badr Corps, and he gave the leader, the commander of that Badr Corps, which was part of the Hakim bloc, he gave him a transportation portfolio. And uh, jokingly this morning said, uh, this minister having, doesn't have even a driving license, uh, transportation minister. And, uh, <clears throat> and then he also split the, the Sadr faction. He took the Asaib al-Haq, they call it uh, the, the leagues of the righteous, it's referred to as AHH. Uh, these are splinter groups, and uh, they were co-opted by Iran, 
And actually, the co-optation uh, harks back to the to 1992. Not, it's not a new. It's not, not a new thing. Anyhow, now after all these things clashing with the uh, uh, Sunnis, with the Kurds, uh, he says that he's stronger than ever, and even he called for uh, early elections. And Sadr and Hakim, you know, shuddered. Why he, why he thought he was, he was strong enough uh, to do what he do, what he would do, or what he could do. He was in charge, he was, you know, he was in control of $150 billion of oil revenues. This is an oil-rich state, government. And this money is not the ownership of the nation. It's the ownership of those who control government and those who control the bulk of the economy. We don't have any economy outside this. We have oil money, salaries to uh, 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 government employees, and those will you know, use this money to you know, keep the, the, the wheel of the, of the economy uh, rolling. Just to give you one example, one indication. Under Saddam, we had altogether the bureaucracy and the army, 1.3 million at the time when the Iraq population was 20 million. Now, the Iraq population is 30 million. That's roughly 50% more than uh, the, the uh, point of comparison. Yet, we have 5 million people in the government service, military and civilian. Five, roughly five times over, 500% vis-à-vis -vis an increase of 50%. And 5 million out of 30 million, you can imagine, if you, if you calculate their, their dependence, we are having like, uh, you know, 15 million, half of the population, relying directly on uh, 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 government salaries, not to mention contractors, you know, other providers of services to the state. It's the only employer, it's the only consumer it's the Leviathan. And this, this, you know, people are getting crazy. One, one guy said, we are getting our homes from the time of Prophet Muhammad down to this moment. This is our homes. This is our money. We have been deprived of it. Now, the elections uh, in 2013, provincial elections, all the dreams, uh, the hallucinations of the, uh, um, the Maliki people thought that they will, you know, overrun just about everybody. And in fact, it was a great setback to them. And they were crazy about it. I'll give you some figures. We have 444 seats on the provincial uh, governors, Arab provincial governors, that are 15. Of these, in the 2009 elections, Maliki got <clears throat> single-handed 157 seats. Now, in 2013, allied to two other parties, the Fadila Party, Virtue Party, and uh, the Badr Corps of uh, the, um, uh, Hadi Al-Amiri, 
Altogether, they got 97 seats. That's losing 60, almost. 60 seats. And to add insult to injury, out of these 97 seats, Maliki had only half. The following day, he went to, you know, uh, to, to Hakim, we are the Shi'is in danger. I said, no, the Shi'is have got the same altogether, have got the same number of seats. You are in danger. And that was true. So he, he tried to generate what we call a threat to Shi'ism. If there is none, you have to create it. You have to invent it. And I think the Isawi episode, the, uh, the uh, Alwani episode, and the, the, the timing of the attack on Ambar were all geared to this end. To create, to recreate a so-called, an imagined uh, uh, Sunni threat to enliven the mobilization effect of sectarianism. And by showing himself as the savior of the Shi'is, while the others are, you know, uh, bad politicians, bad Shi'is. At one point, he uh, accused Sadr. I think, oh, he's not a politician. He, he cannot. He don't know how to defend. He doesn't know how to defend uh, Shi'is. So that was the the uh, idea: magnifying the Sunni threat, creating uh, 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 flashing points here and there before the elections, and. Uh, professing, I mean, circulating this idea that we don't need consociationalism. We need majoritarian rule. And the difference between these two concepts should be clear to you by consociational uh, arrangements in the Iraqi context and in the political science context. It means that when you have a heterogeneous nation with different ethnic or religious groups and however communal dividing lines are defined, you have to have a broad-based government, representatives of all these segments, with some veto power relative to issues that has to do directly with that group. That, that's the consociational concept. Or at least that was the theory tells us about. And we had some checks and balances that have consociational nature. We had the veto power granted to the president, but granted only for two terms. And that was the biggest mistake. It was the moment this veto power was gone, Maliki went through. That was one of the feeble, I, I, I agree, feeble checks and balances to keep the system in balance. We don't have any meaningful division of power. All the money in the pockets of Maliki, he can dispense with it the way he wants. $8 billion, $8 billion disappeared from the military budget that was, uh, it was reported by Adnan Janabi, and they were <clears throat> trying to summon the, 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 the prime minister to, to ask him about this money, because it was not accounted for at all. Just imagine, $8 billion. It's not $8. It's not $800. I mean, $8 billion. How many lorries would we need you know, to carry these, uh, the cash uh, in this? Uh, so, after the elections... The, uh, the Maliki people were expecting to get a comfortable majority. Uh, they will get 130 on their own, and then 30 for the satellites around them. And they made, they, 
that, that's what they confided, actually that's their mindset, not my analysis, that they might get Goran from the Kurdish lot and get a Sunni weak uh, politician. And indeed, they tried even to co-opt some Sunni uh, MPs by deploying uh, a newly rising star, a businessman named Father Dabas. He's a multimillionaire. All of a sudden, he has got a TV station, he has got companies, and he has got a bank and business everywhere. And he managed to get five, five seats. It was a miracle, the miracle of money. Uh, but yet, now, in 2014, as before in 2010, Maliki stands in the same position, and he is in trouble. He has got only 92 seats. And the blocks that he fragmented to make it difficult for his rivals to bring together, I mean, this problem has become his own. It's a problem for him as much as it is a problem for the others. Okay? And... <clears throat> So Maliki is now 92%, 92 seats, out of, and he needs 165 for just a simple majority, which is not the case. We need two-thirds for the election of president, prime minister, and speaker of the uh, House of Deputies. Where and how he can get them. He is in trouble. <clears throat> Another feature is that we have, for the first time, a clear-cut trans-ethnic, trans-sectarian bloc or front in the making. It is composed of Iyad Alawi, Barzani, and Sadr. Still, I mean, this front, while it's, it's, it is promising, really, uh, but still, you know, it's, uh, everything is in the making, and this is politics. This is, uh, uh, you know, it's fluid. Can't catch every single uh, factor in, in the making. Uh, they need another Shi'i block. They need Hakim. Hakim is a weak person. He's very weak. He is not uh, a political animal in the sense that you fight for what you want. Uh, and he always, in the Najafi style of clerics, if you know that, uh, if you have a hint about that, they always wait things to be done for them. And, you know, if they don't like something, they don't say it. I don't like that. They say, eh, I like that better. Or I like that. That's, that's good. Yeah. And, you know, they always try to avoid <clears throat> direct confrontation. But the good news from yesterday is that they have deployed uh, Adel Abdul Mahdi. I'm not saying he's... Uh, Yani the, uh, the savior, the, the white, uh, the, the, the knight on a white horse coming, you know, with pistols and, uh, you know, to, to salvage the situation. Because, simply because the, the problem is not personal. It has nothing to do with persons. It has to do with the system. The whole system is in shambles. What we need is checks and balances, Whoever becomes prime minister, what we need is a, a strong and new uh, constitutional court. Because the, the current constitutional court, it's a rubber stamp for Malik. It's made of cowards and, 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 and liars. You know, 
I, I can't find, you know, you know, strong words enough, you know, to, de- to describe them. They are ashamed to, to everything called law or, 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 or justice. Uh, what we need also is somehow to restore the uh, veto power for the president to create this kind of uh, checks and balances. Uh, I'll stop just there, you know, and I'll leave it to, for you to, uh, you know, to discuss. Okay, and ask well, and, uh, sorry. thank you all very much. Um, splendid set of uh, uh, papers, informative, wonderful analysis, and I'm sure uh, you have lots of questions to make. Yes, John. Jonathan Steele, you know. I can't hear you, sorry. If you wait, a mic will be brought to yeah. I have a short question for Toby and then a more general one for everybody. Um, the one for Toby is, why have we forgotten Fallujah? I mean, ISIS has been closer to Baghdad for the last six months in Fallujah than the other group of ISIS that are coming down from Mosul in the north. So what are those people doing in Fallujah? What have they been doing? Are they likely to break out and move east to Baghdad in conjunction with the people coming from the north? The other question for everybody is, nobody has yet talked about the outside world and the consequences of all this for the outside world, particularly, obviously, Iran and the United States. Could you tell us what you think Iran ought to be doing now, what you think the United States ought to be doing now, whether there's anything they can do together or should do together, and looking into your your clairvoyant position, which you didn't want to be in, what do you think they will actually do, what will Iran and the US do, let alone what they should do? Thank you. Hmm. You Shall we take three questions and then, yeah, the lady there. Can you, um, microphone there. Thank you, Sami. Nadia Shazli from Egypt. Um, I would have liked uh, the speakers to also talk about the role of the regional countries surrounding Iraq. For instance, Syria, Iran, Turkey, Saudi Arabia. No one has uh, mentioned any of their roles or their fingers in the pie. Thank you. Okay, the right at the back there. Thank you, Paul Raymond. I'm a journalist. Um, I'm just wondering if you could give us a sense, perhaps, of whether Shias believe Maliki's propaganda that he is going to save them um, and the fact that many Shia militias are kind of rearming suggests that they don't have much faith in the, in the state's armed forces. Um, and the other question is um, on, the, on the Sunni side. Um, do, do Sunnis who have do the tribes and the Ba'athists who apparently have been working with ISIS... Um, do they really believe that forming an alliance with such a group is a good idea, or is there a possibility that we'll see a, a similar scenario to that which played out in northern Mali um, with the Azawad group linking up with Akmi there? Sure. 
So would you like to, Toby, would you like to start? Jonathan, I remember you reporting from Fallujah very powerfully, so um, yeah, far be it for me to tell you what's going on. But just for the, everyone else, the, the background, um, uh, the... Uh, the Iraqi army in December were campaigning in the far west uh, along the Syrian border against ISIS, and ISIS scored a huge blow and in an ambush killed a series of senior uh, uh, Iraqi army figures. Maliki then surged forces up there, but on the way just couldn't resist visiting Ramadi and breaking the last protest camp, violently breaking up the last protest camp that was set up to protest against uh, Rafael Asawa's persecution, which then triggered the forerunner of this revolt. He then pulled his troops out of the, of the cities of Anbar in, in, um, in January, and then ISIS ever the nimble, uh, or allegedly it was ISIS ever the nimble uh, and quick-moving force moved into both Fallujah and Ramadi. I think what's intriguing is the two different results. That Ramadi, the provincial capital, the hub of any money, with the very little money coming from Baghdad into the area, saw... Uh, a local fight back. I think the old remnants of the Sahwa, the awakening uh, pro-government shakes, to put it in, a, in another way, fought to, 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 to limit the capacity of the rebels to, to hold territory that they're still about. But they held on to Fallujah and Mal- Maliki uh, didn't order the forces into Fallujah to fight across that ground. Now, um, yeah, there are various reasons, I suspect, why he didn't. It was probably the harbinger of the collapse in Mosul, but it was also, one has to suggest, rather convenient that you had uh, ISIS and other forces holding a town much closer to Baghdad for his electoral campaign. And if you remember this massive informal mobilization of forces we've seen through June also happened in January. And Asib al-Haq, the, the, the political commissars now of the Iraqi army, the militarization of the Iraqi security forces started in January. So I think, do I think ISIS can make a move from Fallujah down? No, and they don't, I don't think they even started, possibly because they were planning Mosul. Do I think it was, it was the background, the, uh, the prudential background against which Maliki fought his election campaign? Yes. Um, and, and so I, I, I think Fallujah was left for tactical as well as strategic reasons, I would have thought. Just, I'll, I'll leave the regional question, uh, and it's always, I think you used to say that the US always overestimated the capacity they had in Iraq, and they're not now, to put it mildly. Uh, John Kerry flies in and flies out within a day. Uh, Brett McGurk, the um, State Department's point person on, or now he's fallen out of love with the Prime Minister, which was a long romance that's ended in tears, uh, is, is not in any way uh, pushing America is the broker of the solution. They're trying, but with very, very modest means. To read the transcripts of the briefing he gave in the embassy over the weekend was to, 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 to recognize the, the long dawning of America's realization that hasn't got much uh, influence there. I'll leave the influence of um, uh, the other regional powers. I'll just say, uh, Baham Salak used to say, you wish the Iraq, Baham Salak was the... Uh, uh, briefly, the deputy uh, the prime minister of uh, the Kurdish regional government and uh, deputy, much more long-serving deputy prime minister in Iraq, used to say, and possibly the new future president of Iraq. You heard it here first, if it's right, but please forget it if it isn't. Um, used to say that he wished Iraq was a uh, 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 an island in the Pacific because then the neighbours couldn't intervene. I would add to that, if Iraq was an island in the Pacific, it would still be at war because the vast majority of the problems that drove Iraq into civil war are internal. 
So we can justifiably blame the incompetence of, of the United States, the original sin of this conflict, Iran, uh, Turkey, Saudi meddling, the, 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 the spillover from Syria, but this is primarily and specifically an Iraqi com, uh, conflict with Iraqi causes and I suspect Iraqi solutions if it has any. So who would like to answer the original question? I could t- talk about Iran, actually, it's, uh, yeah. if you want to. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. okay, talk about Iran. Faisal, yeah. can... That's right, go ahead. I thought you wanted to address the regional question, or no? He's asking. Oh, no, no, oh, no, Iran, Iran, you know, won the uh, U.S.-Iraq war. It's Iran who won it. They removed the strategic threat to them, and they are uh, meddling in Iraqi politics on a daily basis. And uh, it was obvious from day one, you know. Uh, what are their strategic? Uh, uh, objectives. Before 2011, number one is to remove the uh, the uh, U.S. forces, to demarcate, uh, to have a Shi'i Islamic government, not a Shi'i government, a Shi'i Islamist government. And they pick hand what Islamists do they mean, and I'll come to that. Three, to demarcate the, the, the borders. I mean, the, the foreign minister, Iraqi foreign minister, Hosha Zibari, you know, he, he was amazed. He said, this is like a sacred thing for us. In his negotiation, he was, he was hearing from the, uh, the Iranians. This is a sacred thing, the, the, the border lines. Three, to eject, four, to eject the Mujahideen Khalq, who has uh, uh, military camps uh, near the Iranian border, and then to control Najaf, they, they tried to build a, a big ha- uh, hospital and to open an office for the representative of Khamenei as a clerical authority, not as an official, Iranian official. Uh, both, both requests were denied, and only lately an office was uh, opened in Najaf uh, and headed by uh, Mahmoud Shahroudi. He's also known as Mahmoud Hashimi. He worked with Sadr. He was a Najaf, a disciple of Sadr, and uh, now he's uh, the envoy, the clerical envoy of uh, uh, Khamenei. But his office is not that, you know, popular in Najaf, as far as I can tell. So they have these are the strategic uh, objectives. An added objective was to push Iraq towards supporting Assad, militarily, economically. And all of a sudden, we have trade, uh, you know, trade relations growing with Syria. We have the, a contingent of an estimated 3,000 Liwa Abu al-Fadl al-Abbas of Asaib al-Haq, they went there. And they have been summoned only just a few days ago you know, to uh, take part in uh, the fighting taking, uh, going on in Iraq. Now, <clears throat> I'll tell you this. It was... Qasim Soleimani, who is the commander of the Quds Corps, part of the Revolutionary Guard, Iran, it was him who reinstated Maliki in the no-confidence move that was initiated by Talbani and foiled by Talbani. There were more than 170-plus votes, MPs who signed the petition for uh, conveyed to 
President Talbani for the removal of uh, uh, Malik. It was Soleimani who insisted that this move should be stopped. And I don't want to go into details. Talbani, for his own reasons, uh, accepted. Now, yeah, yeah, now they, now, the, all, all the forces hostile to, to Maliki, Shi'is, Sunnis, and Kurds, approached Iran. What is it that you want from us that only Maliki can give you? I mean, why not us? I mean, what is it that you want that we cannot do for you? And Qasimi's uh, reply was, we are not, <coughs> it's not Maliki. You can choose any other, uh, but they want Da'wah party to stay in power. That's their condition. And all the, you know, wrangling and mobilization and going on is around these two things. Dawa party without Maliki or without Dawa party at all, the new government <coughs> should be. Faisal, do you want to? Yeah, just very quickly, I think the, the, generally the role of the neighboring states in Iraq has been, as, as they say in diplomatic parlance, not helpful. Uh, which is, by the way, an expression of utter contempt in, uh, amongst diplomats, uh, but, which is not how I meant it, of course. Uh, on the other hand, what has the Iraqi government done to improve its relationship with its neighbors, its Arab neighbors? It's, just, it's done just fine with Tehran. Um, Look at, uh, Toby mentioned Dr. Barham Saleh, who was the deputy prime minister of Iraq, but the prime minister of the Kurdish regional government for two years. In the two years now, the relationship between Erbil and Ankara, that's been the work of Mas'ud Barzani himself. But in the two years, Barham Saleh was the prime minister of the Kurdistan regional government. He improved the relationships of Erbil and Amman, Erbil and Riyadh, Erbil and Abu Dhabi. The relationships of the KRG with these three countries are stronger than Iraq's. In two years he did this. While our relationship, certainly with the Saudi king, continues to deteriorate, such that when the summit uh, was held in Baghdad, the Arab summit was held in Baghdad. Uh, you know, posters went up of the king of Saudi Arabia with an Iraqi army boot on his face. Right. So this is the, you know, now there's fault on both sides. I remember when I was ambassador at the UN, I, I used to speak to my Saudi colleague. And I used to say to him, listen, you know, you criticize us for being so close to the Americans. I said, first of all, the Americans have been guaranteeing the security of the Gulf states, including Saudi Arabia and other countries, including Egypt, uh, for decades. So why is it, you know, halal for you but haram for us? Why is it kosher for you but not, not for us? I said, second of all, you've all withdrawn from us. You're ceding the ground to Iran. And regretfully, I think that's what happened. As for Turkey, my view is that Turkey has improved its relations with the Kurds uh, for, for a couple of sort of strategic reasons. 
One is, that is the Kurds of Iraq. One is the uh, Mas'ud Barzani has been quite helpful to Turkey in solving Ankara's problems with its own, with the PKK. And Mas'ud has actually played this quite well. He has not made, you know, claims over all of Kurdistan, Iran, Syria, Turkey, Iraq. He has focused his efforts on the Kurdistan region of Iraq. The other, I believe, the other reason that I believe Turkey has improved its relationship with the Kurds of Iraq and is on the point of recognizing an independent Kurdistan should the Kurds go that way, I think is to have a buffer to the extent possible between it and the sort of Baghdad-Tahran axis. As Baghdad has come closer to Tahran over the years, Ankara and Erbil have come closer, I think. Um, so that, unfortunately, is the situation. Uh, it's uh, a very precarious one for Iraq. Okay, we'll have another round. Um, yes, Neil. Uh. Thanks very much. Um, Neil Patrick. Um, it's just a couple of uh, comments um, which may invite some response if, if, you, if you wish. Um, just in terms of the, the sense of original sin, which Toby referred to in terms of American policy and forcing an exclusive uh, elite pact, my sense of the opposition when they used to meet in London, for example, um, when I knew some of them, was they themselves justifying it, of course, by reference to Iraq's history and treatment under Saddam Hussein in particular, was that they, too, organized on an exclusive elite basis and define themselves very often, especially obviously if they were Kurds or Shia, in those terms. And partly that was a product of exile in the case of those who had been in Iran, the experience of the Iran-Iraq war um, and the repercussions um, after the 1991 Gulf War. We can justify it in many, many ways, but the Iraqi state, such as it was left after the American role there and the disbandment of institutions, etc., after many long years of sanctions through the 1990s, such as it was, was in a pretty feeble state and was hardly a neutral platform for well-meaning non-sectarian Iraqis to influence events. That's just an observation. You may wish to respond. Um, That seems to me to lead to the issue of the extent to which there is a moment, as Dr. Faisal suggested, in as much as there are many Sudis who don't support Daesh, a moment where compromise could be found. But is there a neutral state? Is there a strong institutional basis for that state in which those kind of compromises can be thrashed out beyond stitch-ups amongst possibly unrepresentative elites. A second quick comment, if I can, very quickly. Uh, external actors. There, as we've just heard in the case of Iran, and also, I believe, Saudi Arabia in Syria, as much as in Iraq, are not playing for compromise. They're playing to win. And these parties do talk to each other. The Turks, too, obviously have an interest in a degree of independence, perhaps, in the Kurdish entity across the border. They talk. Can they can be encouraged to talk. But how much can they make substantial compromise? Thank you. Yes, the Just to emphasize the point raised by the last speaker. Oh, here you. Sorry, can you? Just to emphasize the point raised by the last speaker here. I mean, the the state of the. It is true in a, in a very important sense to say that. The Iraqiness of the Iraqis was 
swept away during the Saddam years. This is the general situation in all Arab countries now. I mean, in Sudan, the country where, which I come from, we have the same situation. Now the Sudanese are not Sudanese. They are tribes, they are clans, they are sects and things like that. See, even in Egypt, which is a very nationally uh, amalgamated country, now the Egyptians are partly Copts, partly even Nubians are now. So, I mean, the situation in Iraq, uh, they were not pigeonholed in Iraq. I think they, they were already in pigeonholes when the Americans came. So, I mean, this, this situation is, is, is very common. Thank you very much. First and foremost, Mr. Ambassador, please let me assure you that Turkey has no problem with the territorial integrity. Sorry, Mr. Ambassador, indeed, Turkey has no problem with the territorial integrity of Iraq. Just very recently, the Foreign Minister of Turkey, Mr. Davutoğlu, has said that, please let me quote, Turkey indeed supports a Kirkuk, where Turkomans, Kurds, and Arabs coexist peacefully as a part of a united Iraq in that it's a part of the talking points that we have been using since 2003. Indeed, the Turkish political leadership also stressed the importance of territorial integrity of Iraq in various occasions. And my question is about, uh, do you expect any kind of Shia infighting in the medium or in the long term? Thank you very much. Uh, yes, this uh, gentleman here, and then we'll... we'll uh, yeah, you touched uh, in, in a bit of detail on... On Iran's role uh, in the in the conflict, I was wondering if you could touch slightly more, perhaps, on Saudi Arabia's role in this uh, with ISIS in in Syria and uh, again in Iraq, and also slightly uh, f- far from this topic, but perhaps linked as well. Do you think this portends signs of what could happen in Afghanistan uh, once American, Britain, uh, and indeed ISAF uh, have withdrawn? Thank you. Yeah, I think we've got them. Yeah. Okay, well, we'll start with Faisal this time. Um, you know, this is a meeting at an academic institution. I didn't think we were taking formal positions, but that's okay. Uh, and I'm a former ambassador anyway, so I'm free to speak my mind. But, uh, but and as, as you are, of course. But uh, I will say that there was a, it was reported widely that there was a government spokesman, a a Turkish foreign ministry spokesman, who in essence said that the decision of Kurdish independence was left to the people of Kurdistan. I'm not aware of a denial of that, and I'm certainly not aware of that individual being fired as a spokesman of the Turkish foreign ministry. If I'm mistaken, I'll be happy to be corrected. Um, As far as the sense of national identity... I don't agree, first of all, I don't agree with those who maintain that Iraq is an artificial state. This is topic for another day. I don't agree with those who state uh, that there was no Iraqi identity. Uh, Dr. Salah Sheikhli will remember those early days in 2003 uh, when we were attempting to uh, negotiate the future with one another. Um, in my view, as a principal legal drafter of the interim constitution, I could actually see the Iraqi identity evanesce. It was palpable. In my view, the expatriate community, which assumed the leadership of the country, and frankly, whom the Iraqi people have elected time after time now, the Iraqi expatriate community, political class, and indeed rank and file, if you will, 
was far more sectarian than the Iraqis in the country. In my view, we should have been barred from returning for at least five years. I come to that view in retrospect, obviously, because I believe had the, what I call, I think I've coined this term, the impatriated Iraqis, those who never left, had they been allowed to run the place, I don't believe we would have come to the sad pass. Saleh? I, I have a comment on the regional thing. Can you speak into the mic? Oh, sorry. There is a sectarian polarization all over the region. It started mildly after the Iranian Revolution. It went even stronger after the demise of so-called uh, ideological politics and the emergence and growth of uh, identity politics, which is, by definition, is divisive. It's subnational in a sense and supranational in a sense, but never national. And uh, you know, most most of the uh, nations or countries of the world are heter- heter- heterogeneous societies. Where where is the homogeneous society? Even in the UK, I mean, you have four four nations. Uh, and uh, the thing is, I, I'd like to end with an anecdote, really. That, uh, it was told by uh, a composer, a leftist composer in Lebanon. Uh, he's known to be uh, a secular person, uh, fed up with the sectarianism in Lebanon, as we are fed up with the, all, all manifestations of sectarianism in Iraq. And he said, <clears throat> the Sunnis have America, the, uh, the Shi'is have Russia, and the infidels have Allah. So that's what's, what's left to, 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 to infidels like, like ourselves. Right. Uh, how do I follow that? Um, I think all three of us were in Baghdad just after regime change in the early late spring and early summer of 2003. And I was living in, in a, a very divided uh, area of Baghdad called Ghazalia at the time. And what struck me as, as, as palpable was the deep resentment with which the incoming exiles were treated by indigenous resident Iraqis. Now, we can't in any way apportion blame for that because if they stayed, they'd have been slaughtered. But uh, to quote one of my uh, fellow panel members, uh, quoted in a, in a book written by uh, George Packer, Assassin's Gate, which I think is still one of the best books written on the invasion, my panel member said, talking about another former exiled Iraqi, I knew nothing about Iraq after being away for 20 years, and neither did he. The difference between me and him is I knew that, and he apparently didn't. So how do you shape a society that uh, is rejecting you because it feels that you are kind of well-fed carpetbaggers that didn't go through the trauma? You shape it on ethnic and sectarian basis, and to some extent, I have a very bright PhD student working on this at the moment, um, who persuaded the likes of Dick Cheney to view Iraq through a kind of cod consociational lens? Well, clearly, to some extent, it was those very same exiles. So we can share the blame of the original sin, but I don't think we can give it to Iraq, the Iraqi population. Now, the Iraqiness being swept away under Saddam is refuted by every single opinion poll taken in Iraq from 2003 to 2014, which shows, that, albeit at different levels, the majority of the people, especially outside the Kurdish areas, backing a unified state 
uh, with Baghdad as its capital. So I think there is an Iraqi nationalism. It's deep buried at the moment in the midst of the civil war, as you would imagine. I think surely the neighbours uh, haven't been helpful. Uh, I'm not a diplomat, but I'll use the same understatement. But I think to blame, in the inference of one of the questions, ISIS on Saudi is to mistake where ISIS's money comes from. ISIS's money comes from the racketeering they indulge with in, in, in Mosul and the oil they've sold in the areas that they've, stole, that they've seized from, uh, from the uh, regime in, in, in uh, Syria. I think they're a homegrown, indigenous, self-sufficient force. And if we want to look for external uh, conspiracies, we're looking in the wrong way. Uh, without wanting to engage in an argument with my diplomatic colleague from Turkey, I know you're doing your job. Well, doing it well. <laughs> but the Turkish government allowed the Kurdish regional government to build a t- pipeline to the edge of its po- uh, po- territory. It allowed that government, in, co- in, 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 in direct contravention to the agreements it had signed with Baghdad, to pump oil through that pipeline, and it allowed the Kurdish regional government to sell that oil without any of that money going back to the Baghdad government's control. That, for me, seems to be a major, um, a major have major well, consequences... That seems to me to have major consequences for the territorial integrity. So I think uh, the foreign minister uh, needs to look at the consequences of his government's actions. I think when we did the final point about Afghanistan, um, it's probably my phone, uh, is, um, is an interesting one. We could call the, 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 the decade of the 2000s the decade of intervention. Hubristic, naive, crazy interventions. And the, and, and the attempt to exogenously reconstitute indigenous state institutions. That has wholly failed in Iraq, as we see with the present con- uh, conflict, and it, it, it almost certainly will fail in Afghanistan. I think what we should learn, and by we I mean rather ludicrously the international community, is due modesty. Uh, quite often... The liberators aren't greeted as such by the liberated population who unsurprisingly resent them, and the liberators, through incoherence and incompetence, perfectly displayed in Iraq, screw the place up. Now, I think it's a nonsensical argument, so would Iraq be better understand? Clearly it wouldn't, but Iraq is very, very bad now, and I think the original sin is the invasion, not its aftermath, and the hubris of Dick Cheney, Bush that lunatic who used to also uh, um, occupy 10 Downing Street, thinking that they could reconstruct externally a state they knew nothing about. Uh, I briefed uh, Tony Blair before the invasion, and I said to him, don't do it, and he told me that he was going to do it anyway. That's no surprise. I told him it was going to be very, very bad, and he he brushed that off. And I said, sir, you realise this is a generation-long commitment, that if you engage in this country's life from a point of view of ignorance that you're, you're going to be expending blood and treasure there trying to hold the place together and he said without flinching or without thinking uh, we're, we're ready for that commitment it was the very same man, Tony Blair who was preparing to pull his troops out as he left office I think the short termism hypocrisy and short sightedness of the United States and British leaders should haunt them to their deaths and that I take only one uh, ounce of uh, 
comfort for, for all the, uh, the horror unleashed in the aftermath of the invasion of the Iraqi people by the fact that Tony Blair wants to be remembered as this, not as the craven lackey of Abu Dhabi, but as, um, as the man who saved the Labour Party and modernised the British state. And his political legacy stamped all over the history with the man who took Britain into, into an ill-thought-out quasi-imperial adventure in Iraq. And that's the only comfort I think the Iraqi people can get from uh, the, the British uh, Anglo, uh, Anglo-American invasion of Iraq. Well, Sorry, you want to yeah. say something? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Okay, yes. Yeah. I mean, uh, we, all, we all search for original sins. Uh, let me look at the history of the Iraq nation-state from 1921 up to the present. Right after the uh, drafting of the first Iraqi constitution under the monarch in 1924, there were political parties, among which a party, the Nahda Party, by a guy named Amin Chachevchi. And his argument, which is now embraced by so many leaders, Shia Islamic leaders, that democracy is the majority rule, and there were <clears throat> census, uh, British census on Iraq, showing that um, the Shi'is were uh, a demographic majority. So why, why not give us the, you know, we should rule. We should have the government. We are the majority. And everybody told them, well, go to the uh, poll and get the votes that you get. And he failed, failed miserably. And his party, uh, you know, disintegrated. My question is, were the Shi'is at that time less Shi'is than they are today? Why, is, why did it fail? And my answer is because the political system was open. 30% of the uh, upper house were, uh, uh, was populated by, by, uh, by uh, Shi'i uh, tribal leaders and uh, landlords. Of the whole landlord class, which was the basis, the social basis of that uh, government, 48% were Shi'is, 18% were Kurds, 6% were Turkmen and, and Christians, and the rest were uh, Sunni Arabs. It, it, it symbolized the social, sociological structure of, in terms of uh, uh, ethnicity and, and religion and sect. And once that disintegrated, once we had uh, uh, military governments in place and then we had single party system in place, these, these mechanisms were unraveled bit by bit. And it is a cumulative process. It is a cumulative process. That what we have reached, you know, I'd like to, to, to believe in an original sin, Toby. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's very easy, comfortable, and, uh, you know, clear cut. Uh, uh, answer to just about everything. But I do believe that we should look at uh, you know, a longer duration of, of, of these developments and how they unfolded bit by bit. Thank you. I, I'd just like to say very quickly about the notion of, and this is, I think, the first time since I got here that I'm going to say I, I don't agree with my good friend Toby Dodge. Because if you believe the original sin was the invasion, then you have to believe that all the mistakes that were made along the way didn't matter, seems to me. And that can't be right. Uh, you know, 
uh, I'm, I'm hesitant to speak about a great British, actually it was Irish, uh, uh, literary figure, Oscar Wilde, here in this audience, but he is said to have said about Lord Alfred Douglas that for a man who knew nothing about horses, he had a remarkable ability to pick the losing horse. <laughs> well, that could be this, the motto of the CPA, with all respect. At every turn, they took the wrong turn, in my view, and I can't, you know, starting with order n- number one, debathification order number two, the uh, you know, the, the dissolution of the army. And by the way, somebody here said that, that and I'm sorry, I've forgotten who it is, that the army uh, was, 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 was somehow affiliated with the, with the regime. The regular army of Iraq was a conscript army. Saddam Hussein feared the regular army of Iraq, and the regular army of Iraq hated Saddam Hussein. That's why it was under-equipped and under-trained. That's why he had the Republican Guard and the Special Republican Guard and Fida'in Saddam. That was a huge mistake. And so, anyway, I mean, obviously I can't defend the record of the, of the, of the war in Iraq since 2003. But just to make the point that I, I think it's far more complicated than to say we shouldn't have been there. Because there's a cost to not acting. And the cost of not acting in Iraq was that a genocidal leader would still be in place. Now, if I, were, if I were one of Her Britannic Majesty's most loyal subjects, that might not keep me up at night. As an Iraqi who had lived under the tender mercies of Saddam Hussein, it's another calculation for me. I just want to say one, one sentence. Sorry, Sami. Well, no, no, wait a minute. No, I, th- I think we should go for another round of questions. Yeah, just one can, sentence. No, no, and then you can, you, can have your, you can have your one sentence after we've yeah, had another round of questions. We, we need the audience to, okay. to speak. Okay, then one more round of questions then. Who, um, right at the back there, yes. Uh, um, thanks. It's a question about the disputed territories, which are now under the control of the Kurds. Uh, the Kurdish view is that we have got what belongs to us and we're not going to give this back. What is the Iraqi view? Um, are they going to try to get it back or what is the talk? Thanks. Hmm. Is this there? Is... People at the back. Thank you, Mr. Chairman, for noticing me at last. I've been raising my hand. Can you speak up, All... please? Sorry? Speak up, please. I'm speaking up. You can hear me now. (laughs) Interesting to see a panel of which three people were very strong supporters of the invasion and hearing them speaking something else which is very good and positive to me. And when I see them nodding their heads when Toby was talking, I felt that this was... Uh, 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 an attempt to clear their conscience of what they have said in 2003 and 2004. It's very, uh, very easy to be wise after the event, but I think what Toby said, the invasion was the major sin, and nobody could deny that. This is the first thing. I just did. Sorry? I just did. Yeah, yeah. The second thing... Sir, as a point of reference, I wasn't in favour of the invasion and neither was Falah. I can't speak for Pfizer. Not you, not you, not you. I said three, not you. Oh. Uh, Not you, not... I don't want to mention the name, but not you. Anyway, you mentioned the name now, so it's clear who was in favour of the invasion now. 
The second thing, the major problem was the Constitution, of which Mr. Starabadi now said he, I, I, I appreciate his admission of what he said of the ex, uh, expatriates, but the, the Constitution was the major, the second major problem in Iraq, a divisive constitution led to the situation, the situation we are living in now. And to speak about a country of uh, amalgamation of people, Kurds, Arab, Turks, and Shias, and Sunnis, and without mentioning Iraq, even in the preface when you speak about Mesopotamia, which was indication of not accepting the term Iraq, is the, uh, has led to the result of this one, uh, of the situation now. The second thing is, or the third thing is, if you only know how the National Guard, that's what they call the army today, it's not an army, it's a National Guard, how the National Guard treated the people of Mosul, Ambar, Fallujah, Tikrit, you could understand why the people did not resist the revolt or the people who came to occupy or to take them over from the government. They have been insulted, they have been uh, in, uh, discriminated against, they have been pushed to the limit by the, these uh, forces, and sadly, when the time came to defend the city, they fled because they are corrupt, and this was the result of Mr. Uh, Mr. Uh, Paul Bremer, the one who established this army on the ground of sectarian amalgamation of, of militias. These are the things I just wanted to know. I have a lot of things to say, but I leave the floor to others. Thank you. Um, yes, the young man there. Um, hi. Can you talk about the state of flow? Al-Maliki made it very clear he does not want to go up. And is there anyone in the state of flow who can challenge him? How homogeneous is the state of law? How what? How, how much? How much? Do we? Is that all? Shall we? Yeah. Great. Hmm? Sure. Oh, to vote more? Or not? I don't know. No, I don't think there's anyone. Okay. Okay. So please. Um, well. Okay. Uh, uh, the figures I heard today is that the, the Kurdish regional government has ex expanded its territory by forty percent since the tenth of June. This is uh, understandable, you could argue, with the collapse of law and order on its borders. But if it becomes permanent, that's territorial acquisition by conquest. And that kind of sounds a bit familiar. Uh, so I, and, and, and it's not a very good idea. So we shall see uh, how uh, we were talking with a senior um, uh, Kurdish politician uh, earlier today who argued that Article 140 of the Iraqi Constitution was the basis to negotiate the return or otherwise of the territory, we'll see. Saad, I mean, I, or uh, three of us were living in London in the run-up to the invasion, and we held a series of rather intense and passionate meetings up at Birkbeck, which is the place for intense and passionate meetings, and I can't remember uh, anyone uh, on the platform, Sammy, me, or Fala, uh, speaking out in favour of the war, but I'll leave it for them to answer that, and I can't speak for the, the ambassador. The question on the state of law is quite fascinating, and um, history is in play at the moment. Uh, that, that's what's so interesting. Um, state of law is not a unified block, and neither is Dawa. And uh, if you speak to senior Dawa politicians who aren't in the immediate coterie of Nuri al-Maliki, you find very quickly an expression of frustration with the fact that Maliki's built... A, a structure 
beyond which, um, uh, beyond uh, Dawa. So I could imagine a very plausible situation where either another Dawa politician, uh, one or two often spoken of, or uh, an, an independent within state of law becomes the next prime minister. It's much more likely a Dawa politician. And so on, on your point about the Iraqi army, I don't think anyone on this platform would disagree with you. Uh, this, is a, this is a crisis foretold by you know, incredibly bad behavior uh, by, by the Iraqi army. So I don't, I don't think anyone would find any, uh, uh, anything to disagree with on that. And uh, there may be, and I'll, I'll let the draft of the transitional law, the Tau, comment on that. I think there may be a, a, a confusion between the tra- transitional law and the constitution itself. Fala. Yeah, I just wanted to add, uh, when I said that we have a, a cumulative process of this uh, segmentation of Iraq state, I should have added that politicization took uh, you know, greater push right after the Iranian revolution. This, this impact was everywhere, even in, in Morocco, Tunisia, let alone Iraq. And after 2003, what happened was militarization of identity politics. It's not politics, politicization was there. That's what I wanted to say. Another thing, I mean, the people I worked with, and, uh, you know, here in Iraq, etc., they were all against war as an option, and they wanted you know, the international community to support Iraqis inside their own country, to work for the release of political prisoners, to stop mass executions for political crimes, and even to, uh, you know, deprive the Iraqi government at that time from its uh, part of its sovereignty and reallocate the funds for education, etc., etc., and these positions are all documented. Those who are interested, they can go back to Merib, and they see a lot of uh, uh, articles by myself and others to that effect. But at the same time, now as before, I was, I'm still against any single party system, even if it is run by God himself on earth. And that's I was against Saddam, and I'm happy I was against him. And I was happy that he, he is gone. I wrote about this. You can write, read my article, on the, published on the 13th of April, 2003, in which I professed so many concerns about the invasion, so many fears about the consequences, but also my joy that this dictator is out. And all his, you know, stooges and uh, those who defended him and those who, I think, bear moral responsibility for all the crimes. I know they, have not, they are not involved in crimes of torture, mass killing, etc. But the very fact that they were part of the system at that time, you know, they should bear moral responsibility. And they should apologize at least for the victims of uh, the families I do not represent the Iraqi people, but as, a, as an individual, I sustained the loss of three members of my family. And one of them was a member of the ruling Ba'ath Party. He was assassinated by his own comrades. When we bring back the, the, the past, we should be fair. We should be fair. If you want to criticize uh, uh, or to be on the higher moral ground, 
you should, you know, the, the, the norms and rules for that high morality should be applied to the self in the first place before applied to the others. Last word to Faisal. I like the sound of that. Um, first of all, sir, I'm not sure what event you attended, uh, and I also don't know what you think you know about me, but I suspect it's very little. First of all, I had nothing to do with the permanent constitution. The constitution of which I was the legal drafter was the interim constitution, not the permanent constitution. Uh, so I'm very happy to discuss with you the merits or demerits of the document that I drafted. And as others who have attended this conference today will tell you, I myself am critical of my own work. Um, but at least you should be fair and only charge me with what I have done, not with what I had nothing to do with. Now, I did support the war. And like uh, Dr. Fahler, I will tell you that Saddam Hussein had to go. This is a man responsible for the deaths of one million people in Iraq alone. He launched three wars over 25 years. The last mass grave for which the Ba'athist government of Saddam Hussein was responsible was dug on April 4, 2003. Literally as the regime was collapsing was the last set of mass executions in Baghdad of political prisoners. I don't feel I have to assuage my conscience for having opposed this brutal tyrant who uh, belongs on the ash heap of history and whose harm and damage of Iraq and of Iraqis is proving to be irreparable. What you're seeing now in Iraq, yes, is the result of mistakes made, some of it, many of it in good faith. But it is also the legacy of Saddam Hussein and 35 years of an absolute brutal tyranny. And I'll tell you one other thing I make no apology for. And that is that when the regime fell and I had an opportunity, people like me and Dr. Sheikhli, and I don't mean to associate you with my remarks, sir, who had a reasonably comfortable life outside of Iraq, we went, and Dr. Faleh, we went back. We rolled up our sleeves. We tried to work. We tried to build something better. We tried to build a decent Iraq. We tried to build a place where the memories of Saddam Hussein would remain just that. Did we fail? Yes. But I will be proud to the day I am lowered into my grave that I didn't just sit back in my comfortable life with my wife and my daughters and say, hmm, what a shame. I tried to do something. Okay. What you did to Iran by your ideas, I'm sorry to say, and I've spoken to three of you about that. Enough, uh, enough, enough. At this point, um, I should uh, thank the speakers uh, on this panel, which has been really splendid.
Thank you. 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 Thank you.